My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. If geopolitics was a car, then Russian aggression towards Ukraine would be the dashboard light that has been blinking for so long, you don't even notice it anymore. It is the right time to remind the whole world that Ukraine has been living under the threat of invasion and for some parts for Ukraine, real invasion and occupation for the past eight years. But this time it really feels different. Russia tonight has 112 to 120,000 troops on Ukraine's borders in 60 battalion tactical groups. There have been weeks of diplomatic talks and so far They've been unsuccessful. U.S. officials wouldn't get into specifics, but they, along with their European allies, have warned of more economic sanctions. Global Affairs Today announced it is temporarily withdrawing families of diplomatic staff. Canadian citizens are also being advised not to travel there, and if they are already there, to leave. A lot of us in Canada have been lucky enough to be able to tune out the years of Russia-Ukraine conflicts. But the same can't be said for the more than one million Ukrainian Canadians who must fear for the safety of family and friends back home every time Russia pulls something like this. And since Russia's current troop deployment is massive enough to make a full-scale invasion a real possibility, the stakes now are higher than they've been in decades. So where do things stand on the ground? What does Putin really want? What are other countries prepared to do to stop him from getting it? And how likely is it, really, that the world returns to something resembling full-scale war in Eastern Europe? It's time to pay attention to that blinking light and figure out exactly what it means, rather than keep driving and hoping for the best. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Seva Gunitsky is an associate professor of political science at the University of Toronto. He has also written about the Russia-Ukraine conflict in foreign policy. Hello, Seva. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, This has been a situation we've kind of been keeping our eye on for, I guess, more than a month now, and that probably many Canadians, including myself, don't fully understand. So I'm really glad you could help us out. The first thing I would love you to do is just as we speak on Tuesday morning, can you lay out the situation on the ground? Like, where are Russian forces and what are they doing right now? Uh, Sure. Right now, there are about 130,000 Russian forces that are positioned all around the Ukrainian border, essentially, uh, encircling it basically from the east and the north. Uh, And continuous troop movements can still be seen uh, fanning out around the borders. There are also about 30,000 Russian troops in Belarus for what's supposed to be a military exercise. Hmm. Uh, So this is really the largest movement of Russian forces to date since the Soviet period. This is not typical war gaming, and that's why it has everybody sitting up and paying attention. Uh, And Ukraine has been doing what it has been doing since 2014, which is continuing to fight the ongoing conflict in the regions of Luhansk and Donetsk. 
So for them, this has been less of a crisis and really more of a continuation, more of the same, uh, which is partly why you see the Ukrainian president saying things like the U.S. is hyping up the threat. And partly he says that because he doesn't want the economy to fall apart from the panic, but partly it's because I think there is a sense in Ukraine, at least among some people, uh, that Putin is bluffing or trying to extract concessions from the West. Does Ukraine have help committed to it right now uh, if Russia does decide to invade, if this isn't a bluff like it happens, let's say, later today? What happens next in terms of allies? Uh, well, right now, a number of states have said that they'll provide lethal aid or non-lethal aid, uh, lethal aid being essentially a euphemism for guns and ammo and non-lethal aid being things like uh, recon vehicles and defensive weapons, etc. So countries like Poland and the Baltic states and the Czech Republic have provided those and then you see other countries like uh, Holland and Denmark and the U.S. moving troops to the region, but not to Ukraine, but to the border, which is essentially a deterrent to say, don't get too out of hand, Russia, because we're right here and we're watching. Uh, and more generally, the U.S. has provided you know, two and a half billions uh, in military aid since, since 2014 when uh, the Maidan revolution happened. And that includes military aid as well. And NATO has sent military instructors to train troops, et cetera. Uh, but the idea, at least... Uh, the way it's it's presented is that this is supposed to be a deterrent. So Ukraine gets Javelin missiles from the U.S., which are anti-tank missiles, but uh, the supply contract that they have prohibits the use of these rocket launchers in combat. So they have to use them uh, as a as a deterrent against Russian aggression. So Ukraine does have some uh, uh, options available to it. What about Canada specifically? What have we said uh, we will or won't do to help? Well, Canada has gone out of its way to say that they support. Uh, Ukraine. And since uh, Maidan in 2014, Canada has also given Ukraine a lot of money, almost a billion dollars in aid. Uh, Canada also deploys about 200 armed forces personnel. Uh, and just a few days ago, Canada sent a package uh, of non-lethal aid. Again, things like protective equipment and uh, carriage equipment, surveillance, uh, things like that. Why aren't we providing military aid specifically? Have we talked about that? Well, in a sense, uh, Canada is providing aid. Uh, it's, it, I think it's a big debate uh, of how much can be provided and how much is actually useful. You know, Canada knows that it, it's not going to turn the tables uh, strategically. So I think it's focusing on providing support in other ways. Um, and that might change. You know, that, that Canada might provide additional aid in the future. How tense is the situation as it stands right now, because, you know, you mentioned that uh, to Ukraine, this is nothing new, really, except in, I guess, number and, and threat. But it feels, I think, to casual observers or people who, who only hear about it when things ratchet up, that Putin is always threatening to invade something somewhere. That's right. So what's new here? Yeah. In a way, uh, you know, that's right. Uh, he has been uh, aggressive in his foreign policy continuously over the past couple of years. I think what's unprecedented here is simply the scale of the troop movements and the aggressive rhetoric that has accompanied uh, those movements. Uh, and there are military analysts in D.C., in fact, uh, a significant number of them, who believe you don't do that just for show. You don't do that just for a bluff. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting. There are always debates on social media about this or that world event. But the Ukraine thing, uh, for me, has really brought out a range of perspectives from really well-informed people not just pundits or you know insane people on Twitter, but individuals who really study the region have a range of opinions. And something Putin is bluffing, uh, trying to gain diplomatic influence. I think there's something to that. 
Some think he might try a short offensive to force Ukraine's hand and then withdraw. Could be something to that. And some think there's a full-scale occupation coming, which I'm still skeptical about, but it's a legitimate argument that people are having. Well, let's talk about the diplomacy first then. I think uh, we've been talking for a while that Russia is poised to invade and and diplomacy is stalled. But there are talks right now, right, with the, the French president in Moscow, the German chancellor has met with Joe Biden on this issue. Is there actually a legitimate prospect for a diplomatic breakthrough here? Are these talks building to anything? Do we have any indication? Well, it's very hard to say because for now it seems to be more of the same. Judging from the conversations with Macron, uh, there have been no major breakthroughs uh, because Putin has essentially said, you have not dealt with any of our concerns. And by the way, Putin might prefer this state of strategic ambiguity where he has everybody guessing because he has everybody sitting up and paying attention to him. Uh, You know, some people seem very resigned to imminent war or imminent conquest. And so I think it's worth re-emphasizing just how much Putin still has to lose here if he invades, Uh, not just isolation or dependence on China or more sanctions, but if he actually decides to occupy Ukraine, that would make for an insurgency that will be extremely difficult to control and will grow very unpopular at home. You know, if you didn't grow up in the Soviet Union, it's easy to forget the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s very much undermined public trust in the regime, even more than it was uh, at that time. And I think the memory of that blunder is still on the minds of the leaders of the country, uh, not to mention on the, uh, on the minds of the older generation on whose support Putin relies. So I'm hoping that precedent will keep away the prospect of a full-scale occupation. I can't pretend to know what will happen, and leaders do stupid things all the time. Right. Uh, but a full-scale occupation, at least right now, Doesn't seem likely. Putin has used force in the post-Soviet space multiple times, but he has never tried to um, do something like a full-scale occupation. So this isn't the first time that we've talked about Russia and Ukraine. I think there's been a whole bunch of smaller conflicts, and I think most of our listeners uh, would remember Crimea. So what is it about this nation in particular to Vladimir Putin? Why is Ukraine so important to him? (laughs) Well, how far back do you want to go? Uh, If you ask uh, a pundit, they'll probably say we have to go back to 2004, which is the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And that's when uh, there were mass protests that overturned a rigged election for a candidate that Putin supported Hmm. and brought in a candidate that was more pro-West that Putin did not support. And Putin saw this as a direct challenge to Russian primacy in its sphere and to his own regime because he saw the Orange Revolution as a Western provocation. And the idea for him was, well, if they can do this in Ukraine, they can do this to me. He's very much convinced that behind every color revolution is a CIA agent. Hmm. Uh, So that's one answer. But if if you ask a political scientist, they'll say, well, no, you have to go back to 1991 when the USSR collapsed and Ukraine became its own country. It had been its own country briefly during World War I when the Tsarist Empire collapsed, but then it was reoccupied by force by the Red Army. So what we're seeing now is a return to those imperial ambitions that Russia has always had control over its neighborhood, which it lost in 1991. Mm -hmm. Uh, And finally, the third answer, if you ask a historian, uh, they'll go back to the ninth century, probably, to the founding of Kievan Rus, which is in today's Ukraine. Uh, The roots of the Russian state go back to Ukraine. And I think that's why for Putin, these reasons are inseparable for emotional reasons, for historical reasons, and for strategic reasons as well. My 
My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. I'm going to ask probably a dumb and definitely a selfish question right now. But for those of us in Canada or even, you know, in the United States, half a world away, um, this conflict can seem very remote. Why should the West care what Putin does in Ukraine? Well, the West is a difficult concept. The West has different reasons to care. Uh, Germany cares about getting Russian gas. And the U.S. cares about a strategic competition with Russia. So they all care, so to speak, already for their own self-interested reasons. If the question is why people in the West should care for the well-being of Ukrainian people, then I would say they should care or not care based on how they generally feel about this sort of thing happening around the world, not just in Ukraine. An invasion would mean casualties and a humanitarian crisis, uh, period. Uh, and I guess I guess one general reason pe- people should care is that you know territorial conquest has pretty much disappeared from global politics since 1945, and I think that's a good thing. It, it, it's an, it's nice to not have that. Now, of course, sovereignty gets violated all the time, but in general, it's a good thing that states have agreed to not seize each other's territory, which was you know keep in mind for centuries a legitimate tool of statecraft. And not just legitimate, but expected. Mm-hmm. So I kind of don't want to go back to that world. And if it happens in Ukraine, it sets a precedent for it in Taiwan or somewhere else that we may not even be thinking about yet. So this is not just about Ukraine. I think the repercussions go well beyond it. Even a little closer to home, I want to ask you about uh, the 1.4 million Ukrainian Canadians and what that means for them. If this thing goes off and, and an invasion or an occupation happens. Um, what will Canada have to do for them? Will we have to create an immigration response? Um, you know, that's a sizable chunk of, of Canada's population. It is. And I think that's a question that, you know, you would really want to ask a member of the Ukrainian diaspora because there are all sorts of uh, ways that they now connect to their relatives back home. But needless to say, if there's an actual conflict or an occupation, that will make things incredibly difficult. And of course, the Ukrainian population here has been very vocal about Canada providing uh, more support. In terms of what Canada can actually do, it's really hard to say because it will depend on the situation on the ground. Uh, And at this point, it's pretty much impossible to predict. As we're speaking, it's not uh, so long since we've seen reports that Canada is telling Canadians in the country to evacuate. Does that mean they know something? Does that mean we're close to an end to this impasse either way? So uh, Canada said this and Biden said the same thing, uh, encouraging Americans to leave. And uh, I think some people saw this as almost a gaffe, sort Mm. of, you know, why are you um, telling people to leave? Uh, Do you you have some, some, do you know something we don't know? But in general, it seems like a good idea that if a giant army is massing on the borders and being hostile as a precautionary principle, I don't think it's particularly controversial right. for either the Canadian or the American government to tell its people to to leave the country if they can. I think in general, uh, that's you know that doesn't seem incredibly uh, strange that they would say something like that. I know you can't see into 
his mind, obviously, but just based on on what your experience tells you about Putin, does he really want to invade or or is it more valuable to him to have the eyes of the whole world on his troops at the border and talking and thinking about what Putin wants or what Putin might do? I don't think he has war in mind as the ultimate goal. If he has to escalate the conflict, he will. But I don't think anything is predetermined at this point. I think there are many scenarios in which Putin benefits from brinksmanship much more than war. Uh, I've already mentioned all the negative consequences that, that Putin would suffer if there, is a, if there is a war. And he has achieved a major goal, which is being taken seriously by the West and dominating the discussion. Mm-hmm. And for a leader who really cares about great power status, uh, that's not a small thing. You know, for the first time in a long time, the U.S. is sitting down at the table with Russia to discuss the problems of European security uh, broadly. Um, so in that sense, Russia can claim a sort of victory. And so, therefore, I would say uh, nothing is inevitable here at this point. If Russia does decide to invade, does Ukraine have any chance with the forces that it has? Um, What does the fight look like and what does the geopolitical fallout from that look like? Well, the geopolitical fallout for Russia would be extreme. If Putin invades, that means more sanctions. It means the end of the Nord Stream pipeline, which is something that Biden explicitly said yesterday, which is Putin's way of selling more gas to Germany and is very important to him. It would basically mean fortress Russia, uh, growing isolation, more belligerent foreign policy, which has been the case already over the past couple of years. And we've seen that this aggressive foreign policy has yielded some results, uh, Crimea in 2014, most famously. But in general, it's left Putin more isolated. Cooperation with the U.S. is, of course, stalled, but so is a cooperation with Europe and India and Japan. Moscow is getting closer with China, but that's not going to make Putin uh, feel comfortable because uh, Russia will always be the junior partner in that relationship. So if his goal was to transform the global order, you know, he has the world's attention, but he hasn't reached his goal. Uh, now, what chance does Ukraine have? Probably little chance against a major Russian tr- strike. Uh, Russia has the military capacity to overwhelm Ukrainian defenses, but Ukraine does have some air defenses, it does have weapons, and it certainly has the willingness to fight uh, both the initial invasion and certainly any occupation. Uh, You know, after 1945, uh, again, we think the World War II ended and uh, Russia won, but after 1945, uh, Stalin had to fight an insurgency for a decade in Ukraine after World War II against Ukrainian partisans who wanted independence. And you can be sure that those NKVD agents were not bound by any international laws, and it still took them a decade. So this is by no means a cakewalk. When might we know what the eventual outcome will be? Like, is there any sort of hard or soft timeline here? Or can Russia just kind of keep their troops there indefinitely and threaten? Uh, Well, there's a bit of a timeline in that troops can't deploy uh, of that size indefinitely. They are in field tents uh, that are not really suited for the freezing weather. And there have been some reports that are not confirmed of COVID outbreaks. So Putin can't keep them forever and keep morale high. But the situation might drag on for a while, for for weeks, uh, maybe even uh, months. And I hope it doesn't come to an invasion, you know, because if he does invade, it, it'll be just sad, sad for Ukraine, uh, sad for Russia, my, my former country that, you know, somebody where I, who was born there and grew up there and speaks the language, I feel like it would be a tragedy. You know, the, Russia could have been a normal regional power 
establish cultural influence, establish economic ties uh, without having to go all 19th century on its neighbors. But it, it seems like after 20 years of Putin, there, there's just not enough state capacity or cultural appeal or economic heft for Russia uh, to really do anything but, you know, fiddle with gas switches and put armies on borders. And that's what we see. Uh, so my sincere hope is that this does drag on until absolutely everybody loses interest. And Putin will say, see, they take us seriously now and see how the West lied and said we were going to fight and we didn't. And the West will say, see, we did a great job keeping Vlad in check. We deterred him successfully. And then everybody can go on living in their fantasy worlds and, <laughs> until the next crisis. And that's unfortunately my optimistic scenario in this case. One more question. What will you be watching for in the coming days, aside from, you know, actual troop movements indicating an invasion? What signs will you be looking for that, that might give you clues one way or another where this is headed? That's a great question. Uh, I think beyond the obvious things, one thing to watch is the level of propaganda on uh, Russian media, on state-owned Russian media, because in the past we've seen massive uh, PR drives, propaganda drives, uh, before uh, any sort of um, conflict or attack. And so far, um, the Russian media has obviously been discussing uh, Ukraine, but it has not been uh, sort of at the front burner. So I think if we see a massive increase in Russian media attention being paid uh, to Ukraine, that might be one indicator that uh, an invasion is imminent. But again, uh, Putin's game is to sort of dangle the threat, and he will dangle that threat uh, in a number of ways. So there are no reliable signs until it actually happens, unfortunately. Well, here's hoping uh, that it doesn't and that this ends peacefully. Seva, thank you for this. I feel like I understand what's happening there so much better now. Well, I'm so glad, Jordan. Thanks for having me on and letting me talk about it. Seva Gunitsky, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca, find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn, or write to us, thebigstorypodcast, that's all one word, at rci.rogers.com. You can find us in all your favorite podcast players. We'd appreciate it if you subscribe to us in more than one. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.